Yes, ma'am. How's it going, everybody? And welcome to The Candid Clarinetist, the podcast where we explore the lives on and off the stage of professional clarinetists, musicians, teachers, and leaders of the orchestra industry. My name is Sam Rothstein, assistant principal clarinetist and bass clarinetist of the Indianapolis Symphony Orchestra and the host of The Candid Clarinetist. I'm so pleased to welcome our guest for today, David Gould. David is currently the bass clarinetist of the American Ballet Theater, and he has played with many outstanding orchestras throughout the world. He is a distinguished educator in addition to his prolific performing career. David is the artist relations manager and product specialist for Van Doren in the United States, and he generously offers his extensive knowledge on their products to students and professionals alike. Thanks for joining us today, David, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for asking me to be a part of this uh, terrific new podcast. I mean, I'm super honored to be counted among the people that you've already had and that I know you have lined up to to take part further down the road. It's been really exciting for me to just get to know people better and, and just share everyone's story. So uh, thanks for joining us. I always like to start off with an icebreaker question. So my question to you is, what is the best clarinet mouthpiece that you have ever owned and why did you or do you love it so much? And it can be any any clarinet. It doesn't have to be a regular clarinet. It can be a bass clarinet mouthpiece or an E flat or I'm just curious to know if you've if you've had one that you always remember. I can go at this from different angles, but I mean for the actual, you know, everyday using mouthpiece, it's the BD513. I mean, not just because of what I do for uh, my living. It's just really a mouthpiece that's given me the sound that I've heard in my ears all these years. There are others been along the way that have done similar things and helped me do it, like the M30 or uh, uh, the B50 on bass clarinet and stuff like that. But uh, really, I mean, I've owned uh, some historic mouthpieces, if you will, uh, you know, have come and gone, but uh, these are the ones that have kind of uh, really done so much for me in terms of playing that mean a lot to me. When I was in my I guess first or last year, probably, maybe first year at Juilliard, I bought a, a Lilande from Roberto's that had belonged to Stanley Drucker, and I played on that for about a year with number five reeds. And when number five reeds weren't hard enough, I guess because I'm a, a bit of a biter, I, uh, I just had to, I had to do something different. And then I, I have a mouthpiece that belonged to one of my dearest friends and, and terrific mentor and teacher, David Weber. He actually had an E-flat clarinet mouthpiece uh, that belonged to Chet Hazlitt, kind of a very interesting musician. Uh, and did a lot, of, a lot of different things, whatever. But it has, it's a Penzl Mueller mouthpiece that actually has a, um, a little metal, I guess it's lead, a little thing you could put inside part of the baffle. And it really like puts the thing in overdrive in terms of sound and projection. So, uh, well, that's cool. I've never, never heard of that before. Yeah, I mean, it's old time stuff. I don't know. I, I, I'm for me with equipment and I'm sure we'll go down this. I like current new because I really have faith that we're making progress, but I do very much like the ingenuity of people in the past, you know, uh, like that, for example, or 
you know, different mechanisms and things like that. It's, it's incredibly interesting how people have tried to advance our instruments and over over the years. So yeah, absolutely, and it's kind of interesting. So my wife always makes fun of me because she always says that she calls my old mouthpieces and clarinets my my ex girlfriends because she's like, oh, you always talk about how it was so great when you had this mouthpiece and this clarinet and you remember those times and stuff. So um, it's always nice to, to, to yeah. <laughs> I think it's really a very good analogy. Um, and I'm telling you right now, you're not alone there. That's, I mean, a lot of us have that and hear things like that. And I have a good, a good friend. It's like, it's a mistress, a new mouthpiece is like a mistress or exactly. a new girlfriend or something like that. But yeah, sure. Exactly. Um, so my answer to this is the first Van Doren B40 Lyre mouthpiece that I ever owned was excellent. I, I've been trying to find one like it ever since, and I've never been able to find one that like I get that exact right feeling. And they do wear out over time, and I've had to retire it since, but I've always just loved that one. And I hope uh, eventually I could find one that's that's very similar to it. Um, I have a Walter Grabner bass clarinet mouthpiece that I played for probably almost 10 years now. It's sort of going into retirement but i still play it every once in a while but that's it was a fantastic mouthpiece and then of course uh richard hawkins has an e-flat clarinet mouthpiece i believe it's an r model and uh, i don't think i'm ever going to need another mouthpiece for my e-flat clarinet it's just a fantastic mouthpiece and uh, i don't play e-flat that much so i i'm hoping that you know barring any disaster it can last me for the rest of my career i just wanted to know if you could tell us where you grew up and what made you start playing the clarinet okay so i'm uh from a, a town on Long Island, which is in New York, uh, called Kings Park, which is about 50, 50, 60 miles east of New York City. Little town, and we moved to the other side of the town, to the neighboring town called Fort Salonga, uh, when I was, uh, I guess, somewhere in middle school. I remember in 1986. So um, what made me start the clarinet? Well, my parents believe that we should all play an instrument, we should all learn an instrument. Uh, I have two older brothers. My oldest brother played trumpet uh, all through college. And, and then the middle brother, he had played piano and he tried drums and just music I don't think wasn't his thing. But he loved music and actually took me to rock concerts and stuff like that. It was uh, kind of uh, interesting fun. So when it came time before fourth grade, uh, my father said, so, you know, you got to play an instrument. What do you want to play? And, and I don't know. I thought I'd play the trumpet like my older brother. He did that. It was kind of cool. And I thought that's what I wanted to do. I thought it'd be neat. I mean, he's 11 years older than me. So like, obviously a teenager is very cool to a, to a young kid. So that's what I wanted to do. But my father said, no, he says, your brother did that. Let's play something else. And he says, how about the clarinet? Because he was listening to Artie Shaw and Benny Goodman and all these things. And he loved all that stuff, loves all that stuff still. And uh, I said, I, okay, I got, you know, what did I know from clarinet at all? So we uh, were at an antique automobile show and swap meet. And uh, there was a guy there who was apparently a school teacher, but also an artist, uh, had instruments. I don't know why that was at a car show, but whatever it was. Hmm. And uh, he got me a clarinet. And I remember being kind of somewhat fascinated by all the buttons and all that thing. You know, that was the how it all started for me. I wasn't real serious about the clarinet until I got to high school. You know, I did it, you know, whatever, I just followed through. But I, you know, I kind of got the bug. I had a great band teacher in high school, Beth Bestrosi, or Beth LaFontana was her name. She uh, She's now since retired, but she was uh, inspirational. And they're all the seniors were so cool in high school band it just seemed like the greatest thing to do and band camp you know we had a blast going there and one thing led to another and a private teacher and 
who was also Miss LaFontana or Miss Bestercy, uh, and met, moved on, you know, uh, then another teacher and then college, you know, school and all that. So it just, uh, it kind of, I would say almost chose me. And I think that every one of us has sort of someone in our life that just flipped the switch for us. And oftentimes it's a teacher or a mentor that all of a sudden you just, they make you fall in love with music. And I think every single one of us can point to somebody in our life that, that made that happen for us. Yeah. That's for sure. So you went to high school in Long Island and I just you know, want to know where, where did you go from there? Where, where did you do your college education and who did you study with? Okay, so uh, at the end, uh, right before, I guess, my last year of high school, my right at our NISMA, which is our big, you know, solo ensemble exams, I remember standing outside the door waiting to go into play. And my band teacher, my, who was also my private teacher, said, you know, I just got to tell you, I think I've taken you as far as I can go with this. You need to go study with somebody else. I think you should call up Naomi Drucker. And I was a little, once I stopped being shocked and afraid. <laughs> played the audition or whatever, and then I went and studied with uh, Naomi Drucker for my next year. And then I auditioned for a bunch of, you know, all the, the usual schools. I, I was sure I was going to be a band teacher, but just because that seemed attainable and all that. And, and Naomi Drucker actually pushed me pretty hard and encouraged me to do conservatory auditions and, and things like that. So um, I remember my last audition was at Juilliard. We would drove out there with my own pianist who I had used, whose daughter also went to Juilliard. Uh, uh, Merrill Apt, uh, who's now Merrill Apt Greenfield. The pianist was Marilyn Apt, or is Marilyn Apt, wonderful lady. Mm -hmm. uh, and they did, they really helped me and encouraged me, and I'll get to that in a second. But uh, we drove to the audition. My, for some reason, my mother, we got lost. We got there on plenty of time, it was no big deal. I had been so nervous for all these auditions, and I just remember going to wash my hands before the audition. After warming up and hearing people play so amazingly all around me, I was just felt very overwhelmed. And I just kind of looked in the mirror, shrugged and said, look, relax, don't be nervous. Nobody, it's not like they're going to kill you or anything like that. So just go in and play. And um, I walked in and it was uh, Mr. Drucker, who I had seen once or twice at my lessons, you know, a revered human being and genius and all the whole deal. And, and Mr. Knighty, I played the audition and I, I have to say, it's the best audition I remember playing out of all of them, and I got lucky. I got in and uh, studied there uh, with Mr. Drucker for a couple of years, and I studied with uh, Ayako Oshima and Charlie Nidic a little bit during that time. But I have to tell the truth. I mean, the whole time, basically from the end of my freshman year, Marilyn Apt and Merrill Apt, mother and daughter, a pianist and clarinetist, encouraged me to take lessons with David Weber. I can still picture the conversation I had with Merrill I was preparing a recital because I just wanted to play. I've always wanted to just play. And I was preparing a recital in my summer after my first year. And I was kind of stuck. I don't know. I just, I loved it still, but something, nothing was clicking. And she's, you should call him. And I was so nervous. I didn't know who he was. I didn't know anything. Just that, you know, so, so I, I picked up the phone. I called him. I remember I went for the lesson and I was at the guy's house for, I mean, I think he was 80 at this point. I was at his house for three hours. Uh, when I went for what I thought was an hour lesson, and I left with piles of music to photocopy. Uh, I didn't just say that. And um, some CDs <laughs> to listen to, and cassette tapes to, all these things. And um, he just said to me, I'll see you next week. You know, it wasn't, <laughs> the decision wasn't mine. The choice wasn't mine. It, again, it just kind of happened. And, um, and it was amazing. I mean, he taught me so much about so many things. And then he actually encouraged me to spend a summer studying with Jacques Lancelot, 
who was teaching at a tiny little festival, not the big super duper Nice festival, but at a little festival in a little town called La Canorgue in the south of France, which is the uh, International Academy of Lozère, which is the region. I, I, me being there made that festival international. <laughs> Otherwise, it was just a bunch of French people studying. And um, having been there and studying with Lancelot, I had very little French at that point. But everybody, I loved the way everybody was playing and everybody worked hard. I mean, we were practicing the clarinet eight or nine hours a day and playing an ensemble. And, and we'd all go out to the cafe at night and talk. And it was uh, incredible clarinet intensive experience. Uh, and I was there for a month. I mean, I, I had a lesson every other day for a month uh, with Mr. Onslow. And um, it was just uh, incredible. And when I got back, I was all hooked and I thought, I want to go to the Paris Conservatory. And that's what I'm going to do. And I... Uh, looked into audition, I did all this sort of research. And along the way, I met a couple people that I went to school with. Dion Hansen, who's a flutist, and John Magnuson, a composer, were at Juilliard at the same time as me. They had had this Harriet Hill Woolley grant and said, you should totally apply for this. And they helped me with my paperwork and told me what I should write and say and do and the whole thing and send in a recording. And lo and behold, I, I got the grant. And that helped me figure out where I was going for school next, because I mean, because strangely enough, I remember going to France to audition for the Paris Conservatory, did a whole week long thing. And again, spent a week with these clarinetists of all different ages and, and really learned a ton and did the audition, didn't get in, came home and started to, as I was on the plane flying home, I started to realize, holy smokes, I, I, I don't know what I'm going to do next year because it was senior year. I didn't apply anywhere else. I don't know why. I, to this day, I'm scratching my head. I promise my, my kids will not do these things. <laughs> They'll be a little more on top of this. I, I got home now finally freaking out. You know, it's an eight and a half hour flight where I had a lot of time to think about, should I still try to be a musician or should I be doing something else or, or what have you? And um, opened up my mailbox the same day and it was a thin letter from France going, okay, that must be my rejection for this grant. I opened it up and it was a short little letter that just said, congratulations, you've been awarded a Harriet Hale Woolley scholarship more information to follow. So I ran from the mailboxes to my dorm room and called up uh, Michel Arignon, who was the guy I was trying to get into his class at the conservatory, and said, holy smokes, I got this grant. Can I still somehow study with you? And he said, sure, I teach at another school. Shouldn't be a problem at all. Uh, there's a little audition, but he says it'll be a formality for you. So, so I, I had the grant and I moved to France and studied with Arignon for a whole year. During that year, I took a bunch of auditions and all that, and I took an audition at the Paris Opera, among other things, and I played, and I thought I played pretty well, but I, you know, I didn't advance. And the next morning, I had a phone call from Philippe Couper, introducing himself and, and saying uh, how much he enjoyed my audition, and uh, sorry it didn't work out, and invited me to be part of his clarinet day at the Versailles Conservatory, and want to come and beat the whole thing, and then I met him, and I actually was preparing for something else and I had a lesson with him and it was lesson was amazing. I mean, it was so detail oriented. It was exactly what I felt like I needed at the time. And uh, I switched, I studied with him for two years. They even changed the name now, but the Versailles Conservatory, a regional conservatory mm -hmm. um, where the class was also very international. And uh, after two years there, I graduated with my couple of different prizes from the, the end of the year things and came home. And then, then the real education began. <laughs> right. You know, yeah. then it was life and figuring out what to do with everything someone all these people have taught me over the years. So Well it's uh it's really amazing that, that you got to study with all these legendary French clarinetists. I mean, to this day, 
Philippe Couper gave a recital when I was at Northwestern. To this day, the best recital I've ever heard in my life. And I don't think I'll ever hear a better one. It was just so incredible. Like, I, I can't even explain it. <laughs> <laughs> he is that way. <laughs> He's yeah, really it, great. It was I mean, so just the way that he creates colors. And he did a, a master class as well. And it was all French music. And just like, he, he totally changed the way I approach playing French music. And this is just from listening to him talk and hear him play, you know, for a couple hours. So what a great opportunity that you got to do that, especially since, you know, the clarinet has has such deep roots in France. And you were able to go there and study with all these legendary uh, performers and, and people. And that's, that's really great. I am just playing very, very lucky. And I look back at my whole, whatever, my musical life, I'm just very, I can only say I'm super lucky because all the opportunities I've had, the way they've presented themselves and the way they've happened, it's its really given me a, a direction that I don't know that I would have figured out on my own, for sure. So, Absolutely. Uh, when did you start with the American Ballet Theater, and what other orchestras in New York do you play with uh, regularly? Let's see. I moved back to New York in the summer of 1999, and in the, the spring season of 20, uh, sorry, 2000, yeah, I was asked to fill in to play a run of Romeo and Juliet, uh, which means, I guess, three rehearsals and eight performances over the span of basically eight, uh, nine or 10 days. The section at that point was John Manassi, Steve Williamson playing second, and me uh, for that week playing bass. Well, it's my first really pretty much anything on bass clarinet, certainly professionally. You know, I, just, I bought a bass clarinet before I left France, just as kind of coming back. Man, I had that music, and that, the part I had was all bass clef, and I just oh gosh, walked around <laughs> and studied it. And, you know, I mean, I read bass clef, so that's fine, uh, but it's still, you know, you're playing a clarinet and you're reading a different clef, it can really mess with you. Yeah, the first, I mean, the first time you learn how to do it, it's very disorienting. That's for it sure. takes a little time to learn how to do it before you start freaking out because you're seeing notes in different places and you're associating your fingers going in different places. So it's it's definitely a good skill to get ahead on if anyone's interested in playing bass clarinet professionally. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, although nowadays everybody's got transposed parts or, or uh, you know, different clefts and all that sort of thing. But, you know, look, the generation even before me, there were guys that played bass clef, no problem, bass and A, no problem. Oh, here's a cello part. Play the cello part to me, and they can transpose. I mean, it's remarkable. I, yeah. um, I'm in the middle of that. <laughs> I can read bass clef. And I can slowly transpose if I have to, but it's. Uh... Yeah, I do some things. You know, like if I have like the, for example, the Rachmaninoff Third Symphony is very chromatic and it's all bass clef and A. So that one I do use a part for. But for stuff like the the Tristan, you know, I learned that part bass clef and A. So I just play it like that and you know pictures in an exhibition there's a couple of moments that are bass clef and a and so, so, so I, i'm i'm kind of like you i'm a hybrid sometimes i i need the, the bailout but i mean it, it's a it's a it's based on how much time you have and it's a muscle i mean really the yeah. more you use it the better you'll be able to so but uh so so that uh so i did that and that went pretty well and that started uh that was the first thing i did and uh i was supposed to play it for the my 20th anniversary this season that sadly got canceled due to this horrific uh, virus floating around but um but i've probably played romeo uh, at least 100 times now and uh, it's still uh, it's never boring it never gets old it's uh, how someone could write such incredible music i'll, I'll never understand but um uh, other than that i mean i, I 
freelance uh, around as an extra clarinetist. I, I play all of the clarinets, or at least I try to play all of the clarinets. So uh, play with the New York Philharmonic. Uh, I've done, I think I've played contra with them a lot, uh, bass a lot. Uh, I played a, we did a Curliano first symphony where I had to play E flat, B flat, and contra. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Which was fun. Uh, yeah. It's just lucky. I mean, I've play at the Met uh, when they when they really need somebody. I've done some stage band and some bass clarinet and all that sort of stuff. Um, and uh, what else? Uh, a tiny bit with City Ballet. I did a couple things with the City Opera back in the day. But I've been lucky with all the friends that I've gotten to know over the years. You know, uh, like Steve Williamson. Uh, we were in school at the same time. Uh, he was a master's student. I was an undergrad, but. Uh, he, I had a, a phone call to, to come sub last minute with uh, the CSO in Chicago, and uh, which was kind of incredible, and, and uh, then went on to play a, a couple weeks at Ravinia. Um, uh, Philadelphia Orchestra, I've been lucky to, to have uh, been asked. I played, I was supposed to play Electra with them again. That was also mm -hmm. another sad thing that sadly got canceled, but I played with it years back with them in Dutois, and uh, I've had a couple of crazy things. You know, I remember getting a, uh, you know, for me, a lot of the stuff is very last minute, uh, emergencies, you know. Another kind of crazy last minute thing was uh, with the Philadelphia Orchestra. I've had two interesting uh, experiences. Look, even the Chicago Symphony was a, uh, uh, Greg Smith, something happened with his eye, and I, you know, a few days before, can you come here next, you know, in a few days? So, but, but uh, Philadelphia, I had uh, two instances that were kind of funny. One was uh, the earlier one was uh, a text message at night from Paul Demers asking me, are, you know, are you free? The I guess it wasn't tomorrow, but it's the day after tomorrow. Uh, my mother's not well. I want to go be with her and. Um, could you come play this program? Sure. When's the recital? He goes, it was today. <laughs> yeah. So I'm like, uh, okay, well, what's the program? It was their opening night gala. So it was to play bass clarinet on excerpts from the Nutcracker, the Toccata and Fugue, Stokowski arrangement, and the Sorcerer's Apprentice. <laughs> yeah, you so, there's enough there. So uh, it was something to do. So uh, after I calmed down, of course, I said yes. Uh, and started to practice and, and got to do that and the funny thing is it's a gala they didn't want people on and off stage so i mean i probably sat there for half an hour before i played the first note i was involved in uh which is something i don't think people always recognize but you know i think that was my first time playing with yannick to see his style and the whole thing and uh it was pretty wild it's a fun challenge to to be put in those things but uh having known uh boris while he was in new york when when la needed some extra help for a big big program with, I think it was uh, Varez Amarique, which is a huge clarinet section. Mm, oh, you yeah. want to come play? Well, sure. You know, who would want to go play? And so I've just been really, really, really lucky with, with things like that. You know, it's even my, the first experience that I'm thinking of that really, and I always give this friend, uh, uh, I really tell this to him and I think he's, he feels funny about it, is Patrick Messina. I knew Patrick when he was living in New York before he got the job in the French National Orchestra. And we became very good friends, having lived there and always wanted to use my French. And it was, uh, it was just fun. We became good friends. And he was over there, and they needed an extra player for a, another big orchestra piece. And 
I flew to France and sat in the, his orchestra there. And I got to go a few different times to play a few different things. And it's uh, remarkable. But I told him, you know, that all came at a point in my life where I was kind of low, hadn't had much playing to do, and uh, was contemplating maybe changing up my life to go sit in his orchestra and play Shostakovich eighth on second clarinet with Haitink conducting kind of slapped me in the face and said, no, 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 this is like the sort of thing you want to do, remember? And uh, from there, I kind of just stuck with it. And, and this is where we are today. So that's great, David. And and I think you're you're really showing a valuable lesson, which is I always encourage people, you know, learn all the clarinets because you never know when someone's going to call. And the the worst thing you can do is you know, the Philadelphia Orchestra calls and says, you know, we need you for Madame Butterfly. Can you play bass clarinet? Do you know the part? And you say no. Like, that's the yeah, worst right. possible scenario. And so, like, just being ready at all times, making sure you're always in shape. And, you know, if an opportunity like this comes up, you can do it. And and I think that you've kind of proved that it, that's valuable, that it happens a lot. I mean, I, all kidding aside throughout all these things, these lucky experiences, I've kind of spent my life through i i really i wouldn't pretend to know how to run a school but i really think i would i could offer up some interesting curriculum ideas and and repertoire classes just to give everybody a, a quick notion of what it's all i mean the the butterfly story i mean it's kind of funny where we're in the opera and uh in the you know the big famous op the big famous aria you know that's going on when all finishes everybody's applauding and i lean over to the guy playing second i'm like and uh, i hope i can say this on your you know, on your podcast i lean over him i said i said no shit that's in this and he started cracking <laughs> up and yeah. uh, it was just such a good it was so fun but conversely another last minute at the met was to play Turandot. I, I mean, I have to be very honest with you. I, I've never, I, I didn't know the operas. I don't listen to the operas like anybody should, but you know, and that's another example of something kids should learn. But we go, we play Turandot and you know, he takes me through the part right before. He's like, oh, just this, this, that. Okay, over there, uh, the last thing, oh, that's a solo, you know, so, you know, make sure you bring it out. Like, okay, you know, we play it and, and we go. And, and by solo, he meant like, you're the only one making sound in, in a room with thousands of people, but whatever. Uh, I learned that as, as it happened, which was kind of fun. And then uh, afterwards, you know, I survived and uh, he pats me on the shoulder. He says, great job. He says, there'll be a little something extra in the paycheck next week. And I start laughing and he goes, no, really? And I'm like, what? And they turn and they look at each other. I think it was, it was Anton Rist and Dean LeBlanc. I forget if it was Dean or Anton that said, yeah, well, we didn't want to freak you out beforehand, but this was a live broadcast. <laughs> <laughs> so okay. yeah. I was, uh, I was, uh, I said, you know, I, that's probably, uh, probably a good thing that you didn't, that you didn't tell me ahead of time. Honestly, I mean, if you can listen to stuff and if you can spend some time with the different instruments, just to be familiar, it, it, it makes it easier because look, I mean, a chance to, to make music on levels like that, even if you're playing, you know, contrabass clarinet for four minutes or four notes sitting on that stage to be a part of that and to see what goes on. It's a, an incredible uh, education and it's uh, I mean to, to see art being made uh, and being involved with it it's just it's just amazing I mean I really I couldn't uh, I wouldn't be where I am today if I wasn't playing auxiliary instruments really that's the truth yeah. I'm not ashamed or afraid to say that 
And, you know, I've, I, I mean, I know at least for our orchestra, like sometimes we need people last minute and we have to call someone, you know, maybe who we're not too familiar with and they come in and they just nail it. And then all of a sudden they they pop up the sub list pretty fast. And, that's, you know, that's, yep. it's always good to stay ready and be ready to do things. So yeah, that's great, great advice. And, and I agree with you. I think, I think that a lot more people need to know that, you know, if there's a way we can fit that into a curriculum somewhere, I think it'd be very valuable. So in addition to your prolific playing career, you are also a renowned educator. So where have you taught in the past and are you still actively teaching? Well, well, thank you. Renowned, I think might be, uh, might be pushing it a little bit, but uh, <laughs> no, I, uh, for, I had taught at Brooklyn College Conservatory for, geez, I think six or seven years. I had, at the most, I think I had eight students going at one time and we had a client and ensemble and the whole thing and did some chamber music. But uh, uh, I've been fortunate enough to teach uh, a bunch of master classes all over. Yehuda Galad let me come do a talk with the students. Did stuff at UCLA, Boston Conservatory, Manhattan School of Music. You know, I've just been very lucky with these things. And I taught uh, for two summers at the Clarinet Institute in Interlochen. I've actually since taught uh, some auxiliary instrument lessons at Juilliard, some bass clarinet, and some contra lessons. You know, just a little here, there, and everywhere. And I'm I'm actually getting ready for the Digital Clarinet Academy to to be a faculty member there. And I actually started my own little uh, thing called Clarinet Conservatory. I, I just want to help the kids in the middle that kind of like it, but could use a hand to really enjoy the experience. So that's where, that's where my focus is for that. You know, I think you get to a certain point where you really want to share what you think you know <laughs> and what you've learned mm -hmm. to try to help other people. I mean, that's, that's, I've got where I am because people have shared with me. So I, I want to share what I can with them. That's great. Yeah. I, I, I kind of wish I did more teaching, um, sort of ramp it back up again, but, but yeah, I just, I love sharing, uh, my experiences because in my opinion, it's not, no one's really a teacher or a student. We're all students. And so when I share things with quote unquote students, I, I'm just kind of sharing what's worked for me, you know, right. and I, I feel like that's the best way. And, and, you know, I learn as much from teaching students as they probably learn from me and maybe even more. And so, so when I, you know, when I teach my philosophy is always like, well, you know, this is what's worked for me. Take it and run with it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, exactly. Yeah. So recently you had the opportunity to premiere a bass clarinet concerto with the Vancouver symphony. I believe it was in February. and can you just talk about that experience and how that opportunity came about? You know, it's, uh, it was amazing. So how did it come about? Well, uh, a long time ago, I had a clarinet quartet and we had a reading session and we were reading all sorts of music and we read a piece by Salvador Brotons, a clarinet quartet. He's a, a Catalonian composer. I don't want to say Spanish because I learned that lesson. Catalonian composer. <laughs> and uh, he, uh, I just liked it, but we never ended up playing it. We moved on, but I, I'm sitting on the couch one day, uh, one evening, scrolling through my phone, and a good friend of mine, Igor Schachman, who is the principal clarinet in the Vancouver Symphony Orchestra in, in uh, Vancouver, Washington, was uh, the the orchestra. And I saw Igor was rehearsing, and they put a picture up with the maestro, and says, "Oh, getting rehearsing with the maestro." And I saw that it was Salvador Brotons, and I didn't never knew that that was a connection there. That, and I just texted. Uh, Igor going, hey, do you think the maestro would write something for, for me? Because I had a whole project, which I'm trying to finish up. It's a, a CD I made of all new music written for me for bass clarinet and piano. And um, I just sent him the message. And then, I, you know, next later that day, I get a message. Oh, call the maestro at his hotel tomorrow morning. Whoa, okay. 
saw him. It was strange to call the maestro or composer to cold call, but I just reached out to him and said who I told him what I was interested in. He said, oh, I love the bass grinder. He's a, Salvador is a super wonderful guy, personable, fun. And uh, we got to talking. He said, well, send me some recordings so I know what you sound like. What are you looking for? And he, uh, I said, just a piece of clarinet, bass and piano. And, and he goes, well, I want to write a concerto. And I said, wow, that's amazing. But the reality of that is it probably won't get played if you write something with piano. I know there are always students looking for recital repertoire and things like that. And, and um, well, back and forth, we got one movement that I premiered at Clarinet Fest of Belgium. The whole program I played was very well received in terms of people I respected really thought it was good music and valid and should be shared. So I said, all right, I'll, I'll go about making a recording. So I did uh, tell everybody I'm going to do it. So if you have anything else you want to add, well, Broton's Salvador said, well, I told you I wanted to write a concerto. I want to write two more movements. When do you need it by? And I said, well, hold on. I'm very flattered and I really appreciate it, but I, I don't have any money. I can't, you know. He said, no, no, don't worry about it. I'm not worried about that. So he wrote two movements and uh, two more movements. I had a three movement piece that I recorded with piano. And then the next thing you know, it's, hey, you know, would you consider coming to premiere it with the orchestra? And, um, and then I went and had a, a magical week, you know, and it's funny, I'm used to playing in the orchestra, you know, and to be the person up front is a strange feeling. And then to do that in a, a different orchestra where you only know one person or two people at the most, it's, it's uh, strange, but it was, uh, they were, everybody was so, so nice. I mean, look, we all have seen how soloists ignore the orchestra or, or really engage and interact with the orchestra nicely. And I wanted to be that guy engaging. And uh, we had a great time. We played kitty concerts of this. And in fact, there was someone, someone fell ill. They asked me if I could sit in the orchestra to rehearse Zarathustra. So I played second clarinet on Zarathustra in a rehearsal mm -hmm. <laughs> during that week, just kind of for fun. They were just so great from everybody from Salvador to the management to the orchestra. Everybody felt was so, so great and wonderful. And we got a, a great, uh, it was a great experience. We got a recording out of it that I think they're going to, we're going to put out on uh, probably YouTube or something uh, soon. But uh, it was amazing. And the concerto itself is a wonderful piece. I mean, it's, it's written, it's beautifully structured. It's very lyrical. It's not, it's not abstract. It's uh, romantic music. There's singing and dancing really is what I joke around. It's a, it's really a, you know, uh, really a great piece that I think people will want to hear more. Really, it's really an excellent work. So, yeah, absolutely, and it's been quite of a, a great year for bass clarinet concertos because in in just this month we or in the month of February we had both you and Lori Bloom premiering new bass clarinet concertos about about a week apart. So, um, no, no, actually, I think, I'm pretty sure it was the same week <laughs> because Lori. Oh man, there must Lori, have been something in the air that week. Well, it was funny. Lori had sent me a, a message. Going, you know, he saw my post that I'm doing. He says, well, on your way back, why don't you stop in Chicago? And I'll, you can hear my last performance of of, uh, of his concerto. And uh, I wish I could have heard that because I love Bakri's music and, and Lori's great and the orchestra, of course. And, you know, Muti's not so bad either. And uh, yep. But uh, it's kind of funny, but I did some interviews about this. And, you know, oh, how rare is a bass clarinet concerto? I said, well, you know, funny you should ask. It's very rare, except this week where, you know, <laughs> You could hear me. It's more common than a piano concerto, yeah. Exactly yeah. right. So. Yeah. so I'm really excited to talk about this next part because if you listen, listen to any of my other episodes, you know I'm kind of a, a gear geek in a way. So you are currently the artist relations manager, product specialist, and the director of the Van Doren Musicians Advisory Studio in Midtown Manhattan. 
So what exactly do you do in each of these roles and how has your involvement with Van Doren expanded over the years? You know, I started December 2nd, 1999. It was the day after my birthday was my, the day I got hired to work at Van Doren uh, in New York City at the studio. And um, at that point, the importer distributor was Daddario and I had done interviews for it. And um, it was the thing where it was, I was gonna go to the studio two days a week for five or six hours a day, kind of like what I'm doing now during the pandemic, actually, an interesting turn of events. But there was just people came in and tried stuff and I was basically, you know, kind of a shopkeeper is really what it was and a little artist relations, meaning just make sure the, the Van Doren artists were happy and contented and all that. And um, then it got a little more involved with some of the French guys would come and we'd do product uh, research and development so I would watch and see how they did all that and um, talk about it you know and I'd learn about the process and what it is they're looking for and what they need to, to do to make all these things happen the job just started to expand and expand and the next thing you know it was full-time and they saw that I was comfortable talking to artists that it was uh, natural for me and and I became the artist relations manager and uh, you know uh, along with that I'm also the I'm the director of our emerging artist competition. This job has been fantastic for me for so many reasons. I've, I've gotten to meet all of the famous people that have ended up calling me and asking me to play because they, they need somebody last minute. You know what I mean? It all kind of connects, but um, it's remarkable. The things I've been learning, still to this day, I'm learning things and I, I'm sure I will continue to. So. All the interactions with artists or prospective artists or something that comes to my desk, developing the relationships for all those things. And then again, product development, we have to make a new thing. Like the, when the BD5 was in discussion and we started getting prototypes and it was my suggestion, I said, why don't you send me, you know, five or six things because they weren't quite sure exactly which direction. So I had five or six different mouthpieces and I had about 30, 35 clarinet players in town that play very differently on purpose to come in and try. And I just took notes and sent the feedback to them. And we ended up with this, uh, with this mouthpiece, for example. But I mean, I've been involved. And when I was a student, the studio in New York opened up. And I remember going to that studio, trying the brand new M13 <laughs> and the mm -hmm. Optimum Ligature when these products were still almost in prototyping or just barely finished. Uh, so I've seen from back then to, to today, you know, uh, the products that we're working on now and where we're going in the future and uh, for clarinet and for saxophone actually too. So That's really cool. Uh, that's what a, what a cool opportunity to get to have more of a hands-on approach to creating new products and interacting with the artists. And yeah, it's great. Um, so they, so Van Doren has a quite an extensive catalog of mouthpieces for all different kinds of clarinets. And I don't want you to go through all of them, but it's a little bit, uh, it's kind of written in code because it's not like it's it necessarily the numbers or the letters correspond to particular measurements or anything. So, you know, you look on the, the, the spec sheets and the fact sheets for these mouthpieces and it says stuff like tip opening, facing length, and, you know, profile 88, traditional big 13 series. Can you just kind of like decipher the basic things that people are going to need to know when they're trying to look for a new model of mouthpiece? Of course, you know, so there's a, a lot of ways to look at this and I'm, I'm very comfortable talking about our catalog. I don't like to talk about other products because I, I, I don't want to say the wrong thing uh, or misinformation, but it's for Van Doren because it's been my life for the last couple of decades. It's no problem. So when you're looking for a mouthpiece and oftentimes even the most serious pro 
or the, the, the beginning student misses the point in that the mouthpiece is supposed to make your job easier. It's supposed to make doing something you struggle with simpler, you know, so that you don't have to think about biting more, biting less, uh, harder read or all that sort of thing. So I look at all the different parts of the catalog as ways to make things easier and more comfortable. So we could start with uh, the first thing that came up. Uh, you have traditional beak and profile 88, right? for clarinet. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean? Well, Profile 88 happened, came out in 1988, and it's the beak angle shape, okay? So it means it's a little flatter. Before that, the traditional beak, it's a, it's a little bit bigger, so it, some people felt it wouldn't be uncomfortable. Either open, it forces your mouth open a little bit, and also kind of it obliged you to play with less mouthpiece in your mouth, I think, you know? So the 88, you could do more, you could take more advantage of a reed vibrating. So that's an external difference that's for comfort, right? Then uh, the next thing that came up uh, we talk about would be the regular versus 13 series. So the 13 series was designed, uh, it started with M13 as a, a very closed mouthpiece, but the real thing is the 13 series was to make our mouthpieces play closer to 440, okay, because that was a, it's a big concern in orchestras and really everywhere, education and the educational world and stuff, everybody's thinking we would have to get closer to 440. So we came up with the 13 series, which um, uh, before the BD5 came, it was all just about, you know, larger volume inside the mouthpiece, uh, a deeper baffle, larger bore and the like to, to achieve a lower pitch center. The BD5 does that also, but it's just the mouthpiece is a hair longer, so that kind of changes it in that direction. So there's less difference on the inside, but more overall. So there you go. Then you've got the outside, you've got the inside, and now let's talk about the next big thing that really changes up and delineates mouthpieces. It's the tip opening and facing and all that sort of stuff. Now, a lot of people are all about tip opening, and with all this extra time, I've been seeing all these videos put out by companies or mouthpiece refacers or things very interesting um, but I think I think they really miss the whole thing a lot of them not all but a lot it's a tool it's about comfort the tip opening isn't there for you to know that I have to play this because that if you lock yourself into a tip opening which is those uh, seems like a, a big thing but it's actually a facing length issue has a lot more to do with playing and and functioning well I think with a, a single read and a mouthpiece than just one number to tip um, and even the, the break of the curve to be near the top of the mouthpiece, it's okay, but it's really the further down, you know, the critical points that where, where the reed actually meets the mouthpiece. For me, that, because that's gonna affect how much mouthpiece you should take. It's gonna affect the angle that you're gonna use the clarinet at, you know, how far your right hand is pushed in or pushed out, pulled in or pushed out. And um, then it becomes the relationship with the reed, right? So. You know, all these things from what we know started mouthpieces were short facings and closed. Why? Because people played double lip. Well, hell, even before that, people played with the reed on top of the mouthpiece, right? Everything has kind of developed based on the need of the clarinetist and curiosity and, and the like. So you have your tip opening, you have your facing length, and now that becomes somewhat of a balance because there are quote-unquote rules of thumb that work for the average person. And that, by average, I mean, it works for most people. If, then if you have an overbite or an underbite, or if you want to angle a certain way, if you want to rest the clarinet on the knee, if you want to really support hard from lower part of your abdomen versus the top. Uh, I mean, if you're playing in a symphony orchestra or chamber music or your third clarinet in the back of the, the JS middle school band, or uh, 
you're playing a jazz gig. You know, I mean, it's it's really all over the place. These the options are there, not because we think one thing is for everybody. The options are there to make options for everybody. So, um, so facings and stuff. So generally, closed, closed, closed facings are long, uh, long facings. Uh, and I think a lot of that also comes from the fact that a lot of done with the pairing of a reed and all. And then you have medium. You can go either way. Medium mouthpiece could be uh, long or or even short. And then when you start to get open, it's kind of medium and then open again too. So I mean, I'm generalizing yeah. the catalog, but I think you know there's there's just so many options. I think the it's oversimplifying, but the way I generally think about it is the more open the mouthpiece is, the softer reed you'll need, and the shorter the facing the softer read so a longer facing allows so that's why a lot of times more open mouthpieces are generally long is am i doing this correctly no yeah listen yeah it's good i mean it, it becomes tools and balances and where you want your resistance or your freedom but yes a, a, an open mouthpiece typically is with a, a softer read and a closed mouthpiece is typically with a harder read because think about it we have that aperture between that read and the mouthpiece the smaller you make it then if you bite you'll just press that read right up against the tip rails and you'll close then won't be in a sound and conversely if it's a big aperture you know almost closely a millimeter and change to almost two millimeters that's a lot of space to have a lot of air go before the read even starts to mount uh, to vibrate on the mouthpiece so that's how it is. I mean, it's it's always that balance to find what really works. But I mean, if if you're playing B40 or a B40 lyre, I've heard everybody from from even two and a half V21 reads to four V12 reads. I mean, it, you, people will do it based on what they want to do, based on their break in and how much they like to mess around with reads. In general, I mean, I would say like a B40. You want to play a three and a half. It's like down the pike, and if it's resistant for you, you are allowed to use a softer read, or if it's not free, if it's too uh, too free long, you can use a harder read too. Again, I think in our our systems, meaning the clarinet learning or education, that we're either stuck with a teacher saying you got to do this, which is good when you're a beginner, or when the teacher teaches why. Like I, David Weber, had us all play five RV liar mouthpieces, and mm -hmm. then uh, blue box RV twelve reads. I mean, that was all that there was. But and I think you know he favored the blue box, but if V twelve worked great, you know. He made us play, and, and I mean, for years, you were just weren't allowed to switch, or if you showed up with something different, oh my gosh. Then I went and I studied in France, and I couldn't do a lot of things I was trying to do, so I thought, well, Philippe Couper plays a B40. I'm going to try a B40, and, and I remember right after a lesson going to a store and trying B40s, and the first mouthpiece with the first read, holy smokes, I understand now. You know, it became, yeah. it became easier to do what you need to do, and too many people pin their lives to something historic or something unique, the one of a kind. And, and honestly, you limit yourself because you're hoping something is going to get better when you're missing the point. I think you, you, you want to make the music. The music is what's important. You know, that's where we should be focusing on. And these tools that we have should make it easier to be as expressive as we want. Like it's like when speaking, right? If you have a small vocabulary, but they're beautiful words, it's ubiquitous. It's maleficent. You know, I mean, it's all <laughs> great, but you're not you're not sharing what you have to say. Whereas, if you have something that functions, you're you're able to to do everything. You know what I mean? So you're not hindered mm -hmm. by 
by it, a piece of equipment. Oh, it's you know, oh, it's got a great sound, but it plays really sharp. Or oh, it's so smooth, but I can't tongue worth a damn on it. Or or any combination of those. Oh, it's too dark, but it feels so good to play. Or this projects a lot, but it's crass. And I mean, you know what I mean? Like it's all these things yeah. that for, for me for 20 years as a in the business, quote unquote, industry side of things. And then before that, another 10 or 15 years of my own life searching and trying to figure it out. I mean, it, uh, and for that matter, I'm still trying to figure it out. But um, we all know, are. It's, uh, it's all important stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, great. Thanks for the, that sort of base, uh, well, I shouldn't say basic rundown, but that rundown of, of the differences between the mouthpieces. So the most recent innovation from Bandoran has, of course, been the new Black Diamond series, which you've, you've touched on. In addition to the mm -hmm. BD5, they also have now the BD4, which is actually what I've been playing on recently. I've, I've really, really enjoyed it. Um, and the BD7, these have become extremely popular amongst orchestral players and soloists. So can you describe, like, I hear a lot about how this is different than Van Doren's done with anything before. So you, can you describe, like, what, how they're so different? I know you said, like, the, the 13 series is just a little longer. Right. So the, the BD5 uh, is a project that, Again, it came out to meet the tastes of what was going on in the in the music world. You know, people wanted the, more of this sort of sound, you know, or at least more people were going in that direction. And Van Dorn studied it. And uh, Mr. Van Dorn actually uh, is still deeply involved in all these developments. And, and he had a project way back when, I'm going to say in the 70s, that was something similar to this. Uh, but back then, it was it's complicated enough inside. They just didn't have tooling to do it in a way that makes sense for a large business you know, to be able to mass produce something consistently and uh, within the means of what the factory had. They thought about this and he just said, hey, wait a minute. And he pulls out the, the dossier he had and uh, it, was, uh, it was really kind of the first push in the direction of where this mouthpiece is today. You know, you have the five, everybody, look, first of all, the look of the mouthpiece looks a little different. So everybody looks at it and goes, oh, it must be different rubber, di different, you know, and it's not, it's just different, a different finish. Uh, less less uh, polishing and a different type of polishing at that. So it's the same ebonite, uh, to the best of my knowledge, uh, it's the same ebonite uh, used in all the other ones. It's just a question of finishing. Then inside of the mouthpiece, there are some differences, the shapes and angles and uh, different geometry to help give it kind of this sound and feel. And that's why people notice it is different than uh, an M15 or a, or a 5RV Lyre. I mean, it's a different a different mouth. There's different geometry on the outside of the mouthpiece as well, the bite plate and the overall length of the mouthpiece. Then we had the four and the seven again, where we, what I tell people when you try them, the four you can tell is related to the BD5, but uh, what I've found personally as a player, it's a little more pingy, if you will, and a little more, I'm going to say a little more traditional, but still with that hint of BD. And then the seven, uh, is a an open mouthpiece that if you put a lighter read on it, boy, you can like really, really do a lot with it. I mean, it's like a driving a race car. It's very responsive, very, very agile. So I mean, there's really um, a lot. And at Clarinet Fest, we were hoping to have 13 series of these. I'm waiting for a BD413 because I tried the prototype and now the productions of the the regular BD4, and I, it's just fantastic. It, it's again, it's really giving will give me what I have in my ear, and uh, I'm just you know I'm a sharp player, so uh, I just need the 13. That's all. So, but I know that's uh, somewhere uh, somewhere not that far away. So, I think I just got maybe I just got a really good one. But the BD4 I'm playing on. I mean, you said it's a little more pingy, which is kind of 
I think with I play on Tosco clarinets, which generally are a lot darker, and mm-hmm. I, I I felt like man, I, so the BD five never really worked clicked for me, but with the BD four, it got me that little extra like ping, and yep. I just like man, I love it, and and it is sharp, it, you know, it is on the sharper side, um, so I've had to adjust my barrel length and right. um, other things. Um, so, you know, maybe a, a 13 series is probably more appropriate for myself as well. But for now, I've just, uh, man, I, I haven't enjoyed playing on a mouthpiece as, you know, as much as this one I, in a long time. So I'm, I'm really thankful that it, you know, came out. I'm just, I'm a little bitter that it took, uh, 18 years for me to find it or, you know, 19 or whatever <laughs> from them to develop it, but, well, look, I mean, <laughs> but I'm glad that it's finally available. So that's music to my ears. Uh, one of the things I enjoy the most at this job that I do sitting at the desk I'm at right now is to help people to find that, you know, uh, it's a, it's an incredibly rewarding experience to see someone smile light up or, you know, when someone's trying a piece of equipment and they just, you know, they play three, four notes and then all of a sudden they're playing, they're playing lines and they don't stop. And you're sitting there like, Oh my gosh, I mean, I got to go home in a half an hour, you know, then you know that there's something great there that, that people really like that it's good. And I mean, and to see people get there, is so rewarding and uh, it just puts a smile on my face because that's you know just great when someone finds something that helps them do what they want to do, ultimately so they can just make music. That's awesome. Yeah, it's fantastic, and I mean, you know, I can't wait to get back because I got this like right before the shutdown, and I can't wait to get back in orchestra and like play it in the orchestra. Like I'm, I'm itching to do that. So I'm very excited. We're all itching to get back in orchestra. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, but I'm very excited for for my BD four. Um, so in terms of the reeds, the most popular cut amongst professionals are, are, are usually the V12s, but there are plenty of other cuts to choose from, including the traditional blue box, uh, the 56 Rue de Pique, and the newest member of the Van Doren reed family, which is the V21. So can you just briefly explain like just the, the subtle differences between these reed cuts? Of course. Now, part technical, what I'm going to say, and then there's a lot, there's some personal and subjective involved as well, uh, just because that's how we all are with reeds. I mean, a reed is a reed. But uh, you want to find the one that interacts best with you. So you had the blue box that's been around forever. Uh, obviously, it's kind of the, the gold standard. And a lot of pros uh, gravitated also to the V12s that came out in the, in the 80s. were inspired by a thick blank read by those moray reads that people like. But they wanted something a little different. And um, Vandoorne studied and came out with a V12, which is very popular amongst professionals. Then came uh, the 56 Rula Peak. And that came, uh, I was in the company at that point, came the launch at the Clarinet Fest in Salt Lake City. And uh, so that's a thick blank reed, meaning the heel of the reed is thick, so it's a lot more material, but it's a little bit narrower than a V12. And the vamp is different. So it's thicker and narrower, the sound's a little different. A lot of people often find it to be a clearer or cleaner sound. They run a little bit softer, so if you like a V12 three, you might want a three and a half 56 to have the similar type of resistance. But you know, with all things, whatever you change, because nothing, no, no reed cuts that we make are alike, no mouthpieces we make are alike on purpose. It's to kind of fill in the cracks. Like, oh, I like this, but hoping we're hoping that the other mouthpiece or the other reed cut will help you get there. So if you're in one of these places, well, I like the V12 threes, but they're a little soft, the three and a half is too hard. So maybe a 56 three and a half gives you that. V12 three and a quarter, for example, you know what I mean? Obviously, because it's a different cut, it's different, but that's, you know, part of it. 
Uh, and then came the V21, which is actually a mix of the 56 and the V12. So you get what I like to call the chassis of the 56. So it's a narrower, thick blank, but it has the vamp of the V21. And actually the V21 is Van Doren for the 21st century or Van Doren two reads in one. It's kind of where the two one comes oh, from. So a V12 and a V6. Yeah, no, it's fine. I mean, we, Van Doren's marketing, they just really like to believe in the product and they want the product to speak for itself. You know, so you're not going to get a slogan that's going to say the, the most beautiful thing or the, the greatest ever, or we're just not that, we're not that company. We're not that way. That's not who we are. It's more of an old school, like, you know, we joke around, do you talking through the playing sort of thing. That's where they're thinking. So with reeds and with mouthpieces, again, I like to remind people they're tools. You don't have to feel like you're limited to just, I have to play all the V12s. You're allowed to have different things. I, um, I made a CD, I guess, five years ago on clarinet because I felt compelled and and it's, uh, it's called The Forgotten Clarinet, so it's obscure French music. And I had prepared so hard. I had reeds. I had old reeds. I had perfectly broken in reeds. I had almost broken in reeds. I had slightly broken in reeds. And I had brand new reeds. And I got to that recording session, and nothing worked. And I was freaking out. We recorded the first hour or so, and it just it sounded not what I wanted. And I was very uncomfortable. And I walked downstairs and uh, back into the studio, and I what am I going to do? And I just started opening up the different reads and nothing worked. And I had been playing just uniquely V12s at that point. And uh, then I opened up, well, this is what I hear. I'll try this. I'll try the 56s. And they didn't, they didn't really go. I tried a couple of 21s that didn't really work. And I just had, I had blue box and I had blue box fours. And I'm like, I don't know. Really, that's going to be a little hard. I don't know. I put it on the first read. Bang. That was like, it was exactly what I wanted and what I needed to feel. And I recorded a CD on four brand new V12, uh, excuse me, four brand new blue box fours uh, that I was alternating between takes. You know, I was break, I was my rotation. You know, so what I'm getting at is, you want to be the player that has maybe two, two or three cuts in your case, or you know, for symphony players, it's a little different. If you go to your same hall every day and you play in that same hall every day, you're going to know what works for that hall uh, versus at home. You know, you might be a different read selection or different choice. I, I've seen guys over the years that say, okay, if the read plays a little hard at home, I know it's going to be great on stage or the opposite. And we've heard all these different things. So you have to remember it's a tool. Don't pin your life on the read. Just use the read to make the music. Definitely, definitely. So I think that one of the most interesting parts of a clarinet setup is the ligature. And I've been fascinated with ligatures for a long time now, as my colleagues uh, can attest. I'm constantly trying new stuff and... And uh, it, I just feel like it can completely change the way that an instrument feels to play. I, maybe not necessarily the way it sounds, but certainly the way it feels and how we respond to it. So can you describe what you look for when choosing a ligature uh, to pair with your reeds, mouthpieces, and clarinets? Well, I mean, it's, it's no different from, every, from everybody else. The, when you have a ligature, it's, it's the last piece that we think to try. I, I'm going to say it because we're all hung up on the mouthpiece and the reed, but the ligature is actually very important because you know it's not your thumb holding it on the read on anymore what i'm looking for is and I, I do this when i'm helping people who aren't quite satisfied with where they are at or what they're getting out of their setup is try a different ligature because sometimes that's that little i'm going to say it's the 10 percent that really makes a big difference you know you can love everything but you know like it's everything's great except it doesn't articulate so well or it's great but i wish it was a little more depth in the sound or things like that. And, and that's where you could say, all right, let's just try a ligature. It's a simple thing to change and try. 
I'm lucky again working here at Vendor, and there's so many options in the catalog that can make a big difference. I mean, I if you know the MO ligature, for example, when they came out, I tried them, and we had you know for the clarinet, you have a the black one, you have the pewter finish, silver, and the gold plated finish, right? And I remember doing a, a, a test or a, an audition for them, if you will. I had my my colleague, Andrew Hadro at the studio was there. I had my then probably 11 year old daughter, and I forget who the other person was, but they were sitting there and I just played the same thing on each ligature. And, and everybody in this case liked the gold one better. And if I asked why, they said, well, it just sounded like there's a little more complexity in it, right? That yeah. was the thing. It offered something, and that's you know the audience approval. For me, the the ligature is really much a feel thing because you, we we as clarinet players, I don't think we can really hear what we sound like because we've got so much going on between what we want to sound like in our ear, what we're doing to produce that sound, and the sound is going away from us. You know, so if we're hearing it, we're hearing it come back, or we're hearing it vibrate up the bite plate through our teeth, through our jaws, into our ears. Right, so it's it's so much. Uh, uh, of, of a way and it's different. It's like hearing your own voice, right? I'm gonna listen to this podcast and I'm gonna go, oh my God, I sound awful because my nose sounds like this or my throat's like this, you know? But that's that's how we all are. So the ligature for me, it, I make it a little bit more, uh, I try to make it pragmatic unless it's an issue. So, you know, think about things that you struggle with or one struggles with and you try them. And for me, articulation is something that I'm always kind of, I, I wouldn't say obsessed with, because if I was obsessed, I would probably be better at it. Uh, but it's certainly something that I'm very conscious about. So I'll see how things articulate, not just you know for short repeated notes, but also like does something let me have a more uh, rich palette of types of sounds of articulation? You know, can I make you know portamento, staccato, regular, uh, accented, different accented, uh, forte piano? Like if, if something that helps me maintain or use all these colors, if you will, or these brush strokes or, or bowings, I mean, whatever the analogy you want to use. And that being said, recently, uh, I tried the prototype, uh, actually, it's not so recent, I tried a prototype of a pink gold uh, optimum ligature, and I was blown away. Uh, it was, I was playing the pink gold MO, and it was something about it was just remarkable to me. And I've always loved the optimum ligature, but you know, we go in another direction. We're looking for a different sort of feeling and stuff. So from, from that day forward, I, uh, I switched back to an optimal ligature on clarinet and just, you know, it's what I'm doing and what I feel and believe because it helps me articulate a little bit differently and, and play differently. Plus for me, it's, it's so well-made and that's not being the product plug, but it's like, it's heavy, it's solid, it's secure, it's got a great thread on the, you know what I mean? You're not stripping the screw and it's like, you, you like, yes, right. And that's the thing. So, so I've been playing that. And uh, I mean, rumor has it that the, the others are in production and we hope to see them very soon. And hopefully we'll be on the market and not that long after that. But I remember being so excited when I tried it, like, I got to get one of these. Like, how can, I mean, and then I didn't hear and I never heard back if they were making them for a little while. So I was thinking, well, where do I, where could I send it somewhere to have it done? You know, you know, it's like, who, who could do pink gold plate? You know what I mean? Like, I really, I went down that road of maybe there's a way around this, you know, like, and then I'm done. It was like, yeah. will I get in trouble if I do that? And, you know, so, <laughs> but uh, fortunately I, I, I'm not, I don't have to worry so much and uh, it should be fine and uh, should be uh, coming soon. That was another thing that was supposed to be, we were hoping to have that for clarinet fest. Uh, that's not happening, but, but um, yeah. So uh, just talk about how, just try little things, try articulation in certain 
troublesome sections of the clarinet. You know, upper clarion register for me is something that can be finicky. So I'll, I'll check there. And you want to make sure the, the, that it either promotes vibration or dampens vibration, depending upon what you're looking for. You know, if you want something to eat up some of the highs, well, then you want to read a ligature that's going to dampen it. And the opposite is true. You know, I think when we're talking about all this equipment stuff, it's really good to have a sort of home base where, you know, I've, I've certainly been guilty of this in the past where I try to change too many things at one time. And so it's always good to just like have a, a standard stock setup that you know is, is what you're used to. And then from there, you can sort of change one variable at a time and sort of see what it does to you. So, so for me, for the ligature, um, my standard home base is the, the leather ligature with the brown insert. And that's yep. just because that's, I just feel comfortable on it and I know that it works for me. And so if I ever try a ligature, I always try that and then I'll go back to the, to the, to the leather and just see what the difference is. And I, and I keep seeing to be coming back to the leather. So maybe I should just stick with it and stop trying ligatures and stop spending all this money trying to, you know, find no, a perfect I'm, ligature. Maybe I already have it. The, the problem is people are looking for perfect and I, I know, or the best yep. or the, and it's, there's, it's silly. I mean, what's perfect in life? What's the best in life? You know what I mean? Like it's, uh, it's overrated, I think. But the question for you then, if it's the leather ligature, is it the clarinet leather ligature or is it the alto sax leather ligature? Yeah, so I, I like the alto sax one as well. But for me, the at least for the BD4, um, the, the clarinet one seems to work a little better. Perfect, 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 perfect. That's great. Yeah. Okay, great. So so now that we've gone through all these different options and, and, and assaulted our, our audience with the expanded catalog of Van Doren availabilities i want to know obviously you said so for for soprano clarinet you're playing optimum ligature traditional reeds and the bd5 13 series mouthpiece yeah no that's that's what i'm doing you know assuming people are still listening or they're awake and listening yeah. yes that's what i <laughs> play for clarinet uh the bd series has been remarkable the e-flat mouthpiece if you haven't tried it the bd5 e-flat clarinet mouthpiece i tried early prototypes of it again i mean i played e-flat when i was in at Juilliard, I played it a bunch and a little bit after, but I play a little bit from time to time now, but not not much. But I was when I was in school, I, I mean, what did I know? I thought I was pretty good. I played and and uh, I, maybe that's just because I was the only kid that owned his own at the time, but whatever. But when this mouthpiece came out, I was very out of shape on E flat, and I or when we tried the prototypes anyway, and I I tried it and it was good. And I said, you know, whatever you did to move this from let's just say like the B40 to the, the direction we're going in, whatever percentage you call that, can you do that much more? And they looked at me and I said, because I said, it's going in the right direction. I wish it did all of these things a little bit more. And we had a long conversation. I said, you have to make a, a, a basically a mouthpiece. You have to make an E-flat clarinet mouthpiece for dummies. And, and what? And I'm like, well, it has to be easy. You want it to be able to get high notes to come out stable uh, that we don't have to find where to slot them in. And that was... Uh, I mean, I'm not by no means saying that I did all of this. It was just kind of the feedback that I offered. Uh, and the mouthpiece came out, and for me, it felt like it really does that. So for E-flat, I'll use that with blue or V12 reeds and an optimum ligature. And um, bass clarinet, I use a, a B50. It's an old B50. I should probably pick out another one, but it's it's just served me so well. And, and um, you know, it's like putting on the pair of jeans or that T-shirt that feels so good. You just don't want to, mm -hmm. you just don't think anymore. You're comfortable and... and do that, and I had been playing V12-3s for a long time on it, and I think the mouthpiece is the table. I think it's starting to flatten out, I think, because I've went up to blue box three and a half now. And, you know, again, it's the same thing. The, the different, pro different, I don't want to say problems, but, like, 
with the blue box, certain notes sit in a different place, whereas the V12 did, or the sound, or the feel, or the durability. I mean, all these things have changed. But I've been doing blue box now for a year and a half, I guess. I don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, Contra, it's a Vandoran mouthpiece with an optimum ligature. Yes, they make optimum ligatures for, for Contra oh, mouthpieces. Wow. Uh, and blue box reads. And uh, the Basset horn is... Uh, I've used B40 or BD5. I think I'm pretty much a BD5 on that all the time with uh, either the Blue Reeds or the V12 alto sax reeds. Yes, if you have to play Basset horn, you can use alto sax reeds. Give you more than one cut all of a sudden. You know, you've got uh, V21, V12, and then a plethora of the jazz cuts too that, believe it or not, depending upon the strength, you can use ultimately to, to do the work you have to do. Great. Yeah, that's awesome. So you're, you're Van Doren through and through, which is great. I've always... Uh played on Van Doren, whether it's the reeds, mouthpieces, ligatures, and it's obviously a great company, continuously innovating, and, you know, their new stuff is, is really, really great. I'm sorry, I'm really lucky to, to work for them because they have an incre incredibly huge catalog and they're constantly innovating. I mean, if I work for another company that, that didn't, it might be a little more difficult for me, but I'm like I said, I'm really lucky that there are options. And I'm sure they're lucky to have you. Depends who you ask, but thank you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm glad you're there. Thank you so um, much. Yeah, you're welcome. So New York City is one of my favorite places to visit in the country. Is there anything there besides all the obvious, like, you know, tourist things to see um, that you would recommend I do the next time I head to New York? And obviously, you know, when it's safe to go there and all that stuff. But I always just love visiting and, and seeing the particularly the neighborhoods are very interesting to me. So is there any place that, that you really love to visit? You mentioned it. I've been going to Indianapolis once a year now for oh, a while eight or nine years, I guess, for this Music for All convention that we do. And Indianapolis is a great little city, too. Lots of great restaurants. Yeah. Next time you're here, you need to give me a call and we'll go hang out. Promise I will. Now I have your cell number, so I will. Perfect. But uh, in New York, I mean, it depends what you like to do. Obviously, food is, I mean, well, we'll see when the pandemic settles down. The food, I mean, the options between, you know, the, the 455,000 pizza, bagel, or Chinese restaurants, incredible Italian places, and all the different ethnicities, exceptionally well-represented. Museums, uh, if you're a museum person, a museum I love is the Frick Collection. Uh, actually went to the Morgan Library for the first time not too, too long ago to just to see it, and walking through there, they had a score to Rachmaninoff's Second Symphony that's in that collection. The Brahms clarinet sonatas are in that collection. Uh, and then, I mean, you just see, it's an incredible place. The Frick, like I said, is an, also an incredible collection. There's smaller museums, but of course the big ones are incredible as well. The parks, obviously Central Park, but then, you know, the parks on the sides of towns are, are also really wonderful. Um, music, I mean, it's really, there's so much to do. And, you know, you live in a place you never you never take advantage of everything you have there. As I'm saying this, I'm like realizing, my gosh, I could picture, I'm seeing the Guggenheim Museum in front of my face, almost guilting me in the fact that I've never gone there. Um, <laughs> you know, Frank Wright building and, and uh, obviously everything that's been in there and been through there and all. But uh, I mean, it's like everywhere else, there's no shortage of things to do if you can, uh, if you take the time and, uh, but if you need recommendations uh, next time you go, please don't hesitate to ask. It's, uh, I'm happy to try to show off the things that I know about my city, but I'm sure there are plenty of things I don't at all. Having lived in Paris for, for three years, I'm good. I like doing that for friends also. So if anyone's going to Paris, please hit me up. I can tell you some, some fun places to see, eat, go visit, and the like.
For sure. Yeah, I will. I will definitely make sure to do that. And, uh, you know, next time in New York, I'm I'm looking forward to, to being able to visit again. So what is your favorite thing to do outside of playing the clarinet? And obviously your, your duties in your job, like, is, do you have a hobby that, that you really take to or, or what's your, I don't know, should we say guilty pleasure? <laughs> <laughs> I'm guilty all the time, but, um, <laughs> you know, uh, this is, this is almost like a trick question. You know, I, I've got a wife and two kids, so it's obviously spending time with my family, but you know, they're probably would be rolling their eyes because I'm always doing a million other things, but no, I mean, a lot of the same hobbies people like, I, I, I enjoy reading uh, fiction. I don't want to read too much biography, but occasionally there's something that tickles my fancy. I, I grew up around antique cars. Uh, it's kind of mm -hmm. a family business and a thing, so I enjoy uh, messing around with them and fixing them. And, and I actually, my father, I've been helping him with this whole COVID thing. I've been able to see my parents more because there's more time, you know. And mm -hmm. uh, I recently helped with putting a starter on a 1911 Cadillac because this is a car that you would start with a crank. But my father is up there in years and he wants to use his car, but it's it's too difficult to turn over. I mean, I shouldn't say that for me, this, that particular car is very difficult to start. All the car people listening were probably saying, well, but you have to have the, everything working just right and all that. But I mean, so, but we've been doing that. And, um, at the beginning of the pandemic, someone gave me a, uh, a Velo Solex, which is a motorized bicycle, believe it or not. It's a bicycle, a little two stroke engine that's on the front wheel. It's an interesting mm -hmm. little thing. So I've been trying to mess around getting, getting that to run and, um, Stuff like that, you know, kind of using my hands, but not, you know, not clarinet related, not business related, not teaching, not it's just something very different. But uh, I mean, I've always enjoyed traveling, seeing new places. Unfortunately, I've always enjoyed food a little too much. Um, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. And, uh, yeah, I'm I'm not that interesting, unfortunately. You know, I'm just like it. Well, you know, I, I would disagree thing. with you because we've had a fantastic conversation today, and. Um... You know, before we leave, do you have any last words, shout outs, pieces of advice, words of wisdom? Well, the, the first one my mother gave me a long time ago uh, was don't let anybody take away your dream. Work hard at it in all the things you do. Uh, try to do it well. Try to be a real student of it. Don't, don't you know, with the clarinet, don't just know the four excerpts, know the whole piece. And I don't mean that as a audition prep thing. I mean that as a musician thing. Uh, be curious about your instrument. Don't just play uh, Brahms and Mozart. You know, play the the uh, Claude Pascal or the Bergmuller or the you know the the more obscure things to be. You know, be a champion of music. Be a custodian of music. You know, share your art with people. People need to hear it and uh, need to see what it is. Respect it. Uh, respect everybody else. Uh, don't talk bad about other people or other things just because. It, it doesn't help, and if people don't realize, they people look at you differently. Other words of wisdom, you know, uh, be kind to each other, practice slowly, and wash your hands. That's that's absolutely fantastic advice, and uh, I can't thank you enough for joining us today and a, a great jaunt through your career and through all your work with Van Doren, and it's just been a real pleasure. So for our new listeners out there, please make sure to like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram at the Candid Clarinetist, and follow us on Twitter at Candid underscore Clarinet. Once again, I am Sam Rothstein, and thanks for tuning in to The Candid Clarinetist.